Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. This is uh, Dave Cruz from Madison, Wisconsin. And today we have Peter Semelhack with us. And he's the founder and CEO of Bug Labs, which is a pretty sweet name. And they provide tools for the Internet of Things, including messaging and visualization tools. And uh, hopefully I got that right, but Peter will uh, definitely correct me. Um, so it's yeah. some fascinating stuff they've been doing and definitely making the lives of uh, some developers easier. And uh, Peter's also the author of uh, Social Machines, which was published in uh, 2013. And uh, we can talk a little bit about that as well. So, Peter, definitely uh, thank you for coming on the show today. Hey, well, thanks for having me. And uh, so Bug Labs is uh, based out in New York City, which I'm a little jealous of. Where, where's your office in uh, New York? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we are, uh, we're Manhattan-based, so New York City is the... Uh... You know, a bunch of boroughs. We're in Manhattan, and we're located. The headquarters is located on the Upper West Side. Wow. Okay. Nice. That that sounds like a a nice yeah, right, lifestyle. Right near Central Park. So. Oh yeah. Are you really okay? All right. Do, do you do you live in a Manhattan too, or outside? Yeah, I live. I live not that far from the office. Oh. So that added benefit. <laughs> that is nice. All right. Well, before we get into bug bug labs, do you mind uh, me telling us a little bit about your background and? and how uh, Bug Labs came to be? Sure. Um, so I am, let's see, so I'm a graduate of Brown University in 1987. Um, went to go work for Oracle Corporation right out of school, which was interesting because Oracle at the time was a, only a $90 million company, so it was wow. a good time to join. Wow. Yeah, it was a tiny little thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was fun. But uh, I started my first company in the mid-'90s, um, and at the time it was, when the web was just sort of invented, taking off, and uh, so we created a, a company that would do websites and corporate development type things for uh, big companies in New York, and that worked out pretty well. Um, my second company, um, what was some of your clients? Software company. Well, who were some of your clients for that first company? Uh, we had big companies like Di- like Disney and Time Warner and wow. others that were just looking. You know, back then the the web was brand new and no one had any idea what HTML was. So <laughs> if you could go in and show them what you could do, um, there's lots of business to be had. So there were lots of small companies at the time down in Soho, which is where we were located. Um, some of the big companies that came out of there were companies like Razorfish uh, and Organic. Okay. Uh, things that are companies that are still around today. Um, How much did we did co- well? But then I got. Oh, sorry. I was, I was just going to ask, how much did it cost to develop one of those websites? Was it a lot oh, more expensive? Geez. <laughs> well, it was, everything was everything was bespoke. There were very few tools like there are now, so everything took you know, months. So yeah, hundreds of thousands of dollars. To wow, big big projects. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, and so we started noticing that one of the things that um, was becoming more popular was trying to access information. Um, with mobile devices, um, it sounds sort of funny now, but back then, um, you just had sort of normal cell phones and BlackBerry was starting to become popular and, uh, BlackBerry required special software for, for companies to do things other than email. And so, uh, I started my second company called Antenna, Antenna Software. 
and we focus specifically on providing applications for mobile devices and uh, basically enterprise stuff, not consumer-friendly things. And that company uh, did pretty well. We grew that company to about 500 people and sold it to Pegasystems wow. up in Boston. So that was that was a that was a success. Um, How long did that take? And then, or by the time it you took said. a long time, <laughs> <It took laughs> almost uh, eight eight nine years. Um, oh, that's typical. Actually, actually yeah. seven years, seven seven years. Um, and uh, what was interesting about that learning experience for me with Antenna was that you know when we got started with Antenna, we raised lots of money. We raised like seventeen million dollars, um, and you had to do that back then because. Back in those days, you had to spend a lot of money on software licenses for Microsoft, Oracle, and others, Sun. And uh, what started to happen after that was open source software took off. And, you know, a couple of years into it, I'd done sort of a back of the napkin kind of calculation. And I said, you know, I probably could have started this whole company for $10,000. <laughs> really? <laughs> all, all the software was available for free. You know. um, and so... So it was very interesting to watch how open source software just completely transformed the software business. Um, whereas before you used to have to raise a lot of venture capital to start a software company, you could not do it for virtually nothing. And as a result of that, you had an enormous amount of innovation happening in software, uh, which we're still benefiting from. Uh, so in 2006, when I started Bug Labs, and 2006 is 10 years this month, um, the idea was, could we bring open source IP, the idea of open source, to the hardware world? Hmm. And at the time, it was kind of a just an idea, a radical notion. Um, and so we got started. A couple of other companies that um, were sort of in the same space at the same time was what's called Arduino, which is a fairly popular yep. open source hardware platform today, um, and a couple of other ones. And, uh, and so I raised some money around this idea that we were going to build a modular open source hardware kit. It was like Lego. You could build devices by snapping things together like Lego. And if you go and Google Bug Labs today and you look up the images, you'll see all the hardware because that was predominantly what we were known for yeah. initially. I remember um, that way back then. Yeah, that was, yep. those were fun days. Yep. Um, but it's, it's hard to remember though, you know, in the, back then raising money as a startup, as a hardware startup in Manhattan, made like no sense to anybody. <laughs> no. Um, and so, but we were able to raise some money because the idea was so crazy and VCs are, are good at funding crazy things. And so um, we got to uh, market. We launched at CES in 2008. We actually won Best of Show, which was kind of neat. It's a small company. Um, so what did it do but, back then? You know, when you first launched, what did the product do exactly? Well, the product, it was a, it was a base. So you think about like, roughly the size of an iPhone, and it had module uh, slots on it, so two on the top and two on the bottom. So you could plug different types of functions. So you had modules that were camera modules, GPS module, motion sensors, um, air quality, so all kinds of sensors you could just plug into these slots. And by plugging them in, you were basically building a little uh, device. The device had Wi-Fi in it, so you could have a wireless you know, connection. So you could literally build like a you know, a telematic solution by putting these things together. Huh. And that was the idea. Um, and it's still a good idea. But as it turns out, it's a very complicated uh, product because you have lots of moving pieces, lots of different things that can um, delay and become obstacles in the production and supply chain. And 
as a software guy, um, I had really no appreciation for all the things that could go wrong. Um, and to make matters worse, you know, we launched the company at probably the worst time in history to launch a company, which was 2008, um, <laughs> which was not a good year for anything, really. Um, but uh, but we survived. I mean, we'd raised a bunch of money, so we had sort of survived through that. But it became clear that in order to really become a successful hardware company, we'd have to raise a lot more money um, just because hardware is expensive and to do it right is really expensive. And there was very little appetite. Is that because you need um, for that. you need the the inventory and like you gotta create all the the molds for the your hardware parts or why is it so much more expensive than let's say a software? Well, it's it's more. It, this is actually a much longer story than we probably have time for now. <laughs> it's something we call something I call a two beer story. Um, but it's it really <laughs> has to do with the fact that in hardware, unlike software, there's a lot of friction in the system, and the friction is everything from um, you know procuring the parts, procuring the right parts, getting them on a timely fashion, building things uh, in a way that is um, you know uh, easily manufactured and and finding manufacturers who will give you the you know the proper terms and are reliable and so on. There's just a lot of things that can get in the way of delivering high quality product and in hardware you know as you'd imagine the bigger your spend the better your suppliers so if i go to a supplier and say i'm going to order ten thousand of something then that immediately um, gives me a, a selection of suppliers that are size x and they're usually not very large companies um and so those are not the suppliers that supply Apple and Samsung and those guys. So if you want to get to that level of quality, you've got to be ordering hundreds of thousands of devices, right? So you just start doing the math, then you recognize, well, if I'm going to be talking about those times of volumes, that's a lot of money. Mm, yeah. And and if you're going to be making that many things, then you better be able to support it with marketing and salespeople and just just cascades. Yep. Um, unlike unlike a Facebook idea where. You can literally just put up a website and it'll go viral with very little friction. And uh, and so from our standpoint, um, we just really did not have a good appreciation of what it was going to take. Um, and so we had to we had to reorient the company really around our software. So we should, we got out of the hardware business um, a number of years ago, like what? five years ago. Five years, so 2011 um, or so. So you tried it for about five, well three years. Yeah, the hardware in the market. Yeah, we. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's basically what happened. Okay. Um, and uh, and so we ended up extracting all the software and all the knowledge. Because one of our big advantages today, I think, in the market is that we have all this experience and we know what works and doesn't work. We have all these scars on our back to sort of help our customers not make the same mistakes and and uh, and so on. And I think our customers rely on that. And for us, it's been. Um, it's been a big learning curve, frankly, and I think the market has also evolved. So back then, you know, as I mentioned, trying to start a software or hardware company in Manhattan was almost comically difficult. <laughs> um, today, you know, there's probably a hundred hardware startups in Manhattan, all being funded by well-known VCs. Um, but the other thing that happened in the world of finance is the idea of crowdfunding, which made, um, you know, going after small markets, you know, very idiosyncratic sort of IoT markets made that uh, possible, right? Because VCs, most VCs won't go after small markets because the return on capital is so low. Um, but so a lot of things um, sort of transpired to make it a lot easier to do things today. So starting Bug Labs 
now would be a lot easier than 10 years ago. And, uh, but all that experience has informed our software, has informed the services we provide, and it's informed how we help our customers go to market with products. And, and how, how would you start it now if you, uh, with the same idea you had in 2006? I'm sorry, what, what would I do? Yeah, well, how, how, how would you start it now if you, uh, if you came with the idea for Bug Labs with the hardware components? How would you go about the I financing? Raise, I would raise a lot, lot more money. So, okay. for example, um, there's a company um, called Samsara out of the West Coast that's backed by uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Okay. And uh, their Series A was $25 million. Wow. Um, that, that's the, <laughs> yeah, but that's the right way to do it. Okay, uh, all right. You can't uh, – because my feeling about software is you can bootstrap software startups because – open source software, you pay for uh, people that maybe you not, don't pay as much because you can give equity. And so there's all the cost really is in people. Um, in hardware, you've got lots and lots of upfront costs you have to absorb. And, uh, and because of the uncertainty around hardware um, development, you just, you need people, you need deep pockets, you need to be able to make as I mentioned, you, you need to be able to make orders and bets, and, and having more money is the way to do it. And that's and that's probably where some of these crowdfunding campaigns go. You know, they raise a ton of money, but it's not yeah. they raise ten million dollars. That you know, the most successful ones, but then they need another thirty to actually pull it off. They're finding they should call you yeah, up. That's, ex <laughs> and, uh, that's exactly right. Interesting. Well, that's yeah. the thing is that the, the the problem with the crowdfunding approach is what you just said, which is that it's easy, not easy, but it's easier to get that first tranche of capital to get started. It's very hard, unless you're enormously successful on that first round, it's hard to get the follow-on capital because you continuously need capital to keep, because the other thing about hardware, especially in the consumer space, is that there's an expected refresh rate of like twice a year. You know, yeah, um, yeah. You, can't, you can't make a product and then update it three years later. That's just not going to happen in the consumer space. So, so that just requires a lot of a lot of just you know investment and forward-looking investors who are willing to, to be there for you and and um, it's it's hard to it's hard to pull all that together. And, and do you see? And we'll get into kind of what you're doing with Bug Labs now. And maybe this is a, a potential segue, but do you see kind of like what open source software did for the software world? Or do you see more companies coming online that are trying to make it easier for hardware companies to come online at a lot, you know a lot more a lot less expensive of course you have 3d printing which could really help you know down the road i mean right now it's still uh yeah you know it's not where it needs to be so but expensive. yeah and uh, yeah 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 from a trend from a trend standpoint i think there are a number of things that are conspiring to make it easier um one is open source ip so for example arduino you know, the entire board design and everything about it is open source. Oh, you can point. use that. Yep. There are there are other open source IP based hardware kits out there. Lots of those. And so, on the one hand, you have this idea of open source and the open source movement um, trying to lower the initial costs of hardware design. So that's one. Two, um, there's a recognition by most big players in the market that IoT as a as a concept is not one market. It's probably a thousand small markets. And if they're going to play uh, and make anything out of that, they have to play horizontally. And so big companies like uh, Aero Electronics is an example, 
which historically was really one of the big players who would sell chips to other big players, has now put in place all these programs to go after small IoT makers, if you will, uh, in the hopes of aggregating, you know, smaller numbers of markets, but then also in the hopes of finding sort of the next Steve Jobs, you know. And so as they're making their new cool thing, they're in the mix and can stay in the mix at this scale. Um, so that's starting to happen. Um, crowdfunding, um, I think we mentioned that. Um, and uh, also VCs, I think, be starting to recognize that these forces are coming together in such a way that they can, um, in certain ways, in certain verticals, um, envision um, you know, situations where they do get good return on capital. There have been some interesting exits over the past couple of years that have helped people think that way. Um, and, uh, and lastly, uh, I think the whole notion of cloud computing is starting to help because you're offloading what used to be native functions on the device itself are now being handled in the cloud. So the devices themselves can be simpler, they can be cheaper, um, and they can be um, just more uh, just more flexible when it comes to offering value to whoever their audience is. So I do think that's a lot easier today than it was uh, 10 years ago for those reasons. Um, gotcha. And lastly, I think there's one other thing, too, which we're not seeing yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if it starts happening. And that's something where we're calling, we're saying that um, in some ways, in some markets, there may be an opportunity where the prototype is the product. Um, and what I mean by that is that the, the processes and the products that you are using now to create prototypes, and 3D printing is a good example, in some cases is good enough to actually be the product itself. And maybe it's not a product you turn around and sell, but it's a product that you would use yourself internally. So let's say in the past, if you needed 100 laws, XYZs, whatever they might be, and you would pay ABC Corporation to give this to you, and you pay some premium, some markup, because you, because you just have to do that because it's third party, today maybe what you can do is actually build those things yourself and do a 3D printed enclosure and so on, get it to your own you meet your own needs for a fraction of the cost or faster or maybe more custom or what have you and um, as I mentioned I don't think we're there yet but it's not inconceivable that in the next 10 years um, there's an opportunity for people either themselves either individuals or enterprise to make their own products if they need to internally for their own use or even to the other side maybe actually communities making products from, for each other that they can sell. And um, some things have to happen. Obviously, costs have to come down, um, and expectations have to get adjusted a little bit. But there are, I think, plenty of examples of that sort of idea working. Um, and, I, and I, for one, think that's a great approach for IoT because, as I mentioned, IoT is not a market. It's lots and lots of little markets. And the people who are in those markets are the best positioned to innovate in those markets that makes sense and so, so let's go back to uh uh bug labs in 2011 you guys have been doing hardware for three years and now software so uh yep. you've got a lot of uh, knowledge and uh ip let's call it and so what how do you kind of restructure and do you find, have to go find new clients could you use the same go to your same clients or how did that uh, all transpire 
Well, as it turns out, um, you know, all of our customers really were making, first of all, right around 2010, we, uh, we switched from focusing on consumer. That's where we were. No, we were originally focused on sort of the early adopter prosumer market. We, we switched to enterprise. So we were at, we went to really talking to product developers themselves, not, not amateurs. Um, and so as we found when they were starting to use the kit, they were always building connected devices. They weren't building devices that would sit in isolation. They were always building devices that would connect to the internet and do things. So in many ways it, that, those were Internet of Things types of engagements, even though it wasn't called Internet of Things at the time. And uh, and so what became clear is that the device itself was really just a collection of I.O. You know, it was a bunch of sensors connected to a board, and the board was connected to the Internet. And most of the value, business value, had to do with the application and the software that was running off the device itself. So it actually wasn't as hard as it might seem to say, all right, well, look, you know, we're, we're going to get out of the hardware business. And because it wasn't so hard at that point to actually swap in other hardware that was providing the same functions and keep the valuable components that had to do with software still within the organization. So we had built, we had bit, uh, built a product called Swarm that um, was really a cloud-based uh, system that would allow you to uh, you know, publish and subscribe to information from devices that were in that particular swarm. It would uh, do permissions management, account management, and so on, device management. And so um, we had taken everything we'd learned as a whole systems provider and just swapped out the hardware because it seemed to be the least uh, valuable component anyway. Uh, and uh, just keep going from there. So from there, we, uh, we started selling swarm to big companies like Comcast and uh, Ford as a big customer then. So, and, and since that point, um, that's really what we focused on. We we totally rewrote our platform in 2000 and uh, what is this? 2014, and now we have two products. One's called Dweet, the other's called Freeboard, um, which have been a, both have been huge successes for us with respect to usage. Um, we've got lots of customers, um, you know, tens of thousands of users, and so for us, it has been. Uh, just this gradual learning process as to how do you um, continually focus on making the product simpler to use, easier to use, more affordable, and allow those who are in these markets, as we mentioned, fragmented small markets, allowing them to explore new ideas quickly and easily using whatever hardware they want um, to, uh, to see if it's for them. And if it is, the next step is to provide, you know, easy pathways to go from you know, a simple proof of concept or prototype to you know, potentially tens of thousands of devices connected. Gotcha. And uh, for us right now, that's that's really what our core focus is. Interesting. And and can you give an example, or can you tell the audience what is a Dweet, which in Freeboard, Dweet is a, a sweet name. I'll give you that. I don't know who thought of that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it's good. Funny. But um, yeah, can you give an example of how developers are using both those platforms? Sure. Well, tweet. I mean, obviously, the name sounds like tweet. Yeah. And yep. Um, <laughs> so so far, we haven't had any phone calls from the <laughs> Twitter guys. But um, the way we the reason we came up with that name is that we considered a Twitter for devices, right? So with with Twitter, you know, you go to the platform, you sign up, you, you give yourself a, a unique ID, so then you can tell the world what's on your mind. 
and I can subscribe to what you have to say, and you can subscribe to me, and, and we follow each other in that respect. Um, Dweet is the same concept, but it's for devices. So now a device can go to the Dweet platform and say, okay, look, I am a device, and I have temperature, I have acceleration, and I have humidity. I want to publish that information on this platform. So Dweet um, takes that information, and instead of the device having to sign up and they wait for uh, a name, the Dweet platform actually gives it auto assigns to the name. And then from that point forward, anybody or anything can follow that device on the internet. So huh. if uh, if you take your phone as an example, if you and you, your smartphone, you go to Dweet.io and go to that website, and you'll see there's a button on there for the page that says "Try it now." If you click that Try It Now button on your phone, what will happen is you'll see a white screen come up. And on the white screen, you'll see some numbers. And the numbers that you see initially are called uh, tilt X, tilt Y, tilt Z. And that's an accelerometer in your phone. And the accelerometers in a, in a telephone basically keep track of its position in 3D space. So if you move your phone around and you check, um, you check those numbers, you'll see those numbers change. Now, what's happening with Dweet, though, is that above that box, you'll see there's a hyphenated name. And it's usually some funny combination, like like my phone is wasteful uh, route. Um, there's another thing that's called mute apparatus. It's just a funny name. But that's a name that's auto-assigned by Dweet to the device. So now what's happening is that your phone is Dweeting its information under that name on the Dweet platform. Huh. So now you... Or somebody can really watch the data if you want. But normally what happens is another device will come in and say, I'm going to follow that device because I'm going to use the information to do something for an application. So the metaphor around Dweet is this idea of publish and subscribe, but it's built around a, an, an analog that people understand, which is this idea of following. And so that's been a successful uh, direction for us. And, that, and so it's fun to get started, but it's also a very high performance, can scale to you know, hundreds of millions of transactions. So it's it's a very easy front end, but a very powerful platform. What what type of yeah? That's that sounds quite slick. And uh, what type of protocol do do the machines talk to each other in? Or There's is, two right now. One's HTTP, okay. and the other is MQTT. Gotcha. And uh, so I'm definitely familiar with HTTP. What and what was the other one? Um, MQTT. M okay. Is that more of a hardware protocol? Or is that the internet too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely it's, it was designed by IBM. It's sort of okay. low latency, low, it's very concise. And okay. So, so any any machine that uh, sends out a messaging and that, that that those protocols you can uh, take in and then uh, push out to whoever is asking for it and we're following that machine. That's right. Yep. Wow. That's yeah. That's slick. Um, interesting. And what about the free? Uh, freeboard. What's an example? And freeboard is a freeboard is a, is a consumer of the data, and it's a visualization tool. So you can use it to build uh, dashboards, uh, applications, and other things. So you would have the information coming from Tweet, and then uh, freeboard would be the way that you could build beautiful visualizations of the data. So you could put up graphs and gauges and charts and so on that sort of show in real time the data that Tweet is presenting. And so they, they basically work hand in glove um, to build uh, IoT apps. And, and, and so if you think about it, you know, the, the websites make it easy to use. Um, but our other line of business is that we help companies take these products and wrap 
their own brand around them and use them for their own products. So, for example, Sam, um, Verizon uh, last December launched a, a, a portal called ThingSpace. And ThingSpace is a developer's tool to let them let developers use the, uh, the Verizon network services more easily. And uh, they took our platform, Tweet and Freeboard, and they basically white-labeled them under the Verizon brand or the ThingSpace brand. And uh, I know, you know, uh, promoting and marketing that portal um, with our technology built in. And we have a number of companies who are doing that now. Um, Ford is starting to do it. Uh, Renaissance is starting to do it. Wow. And uh, you know, more will follow. But the idea here is that every company who makes a thing or has some service that is an interesting or useful for IoT now need to provide easy ways for people to use them. And so that's uh, another area that we specialize in. So how's their architecture set up? Do you, I mean, you must have, we're going to have a huge number of transactions at some point. Um, is that all going through your uh, servers and platforms? Um, yeah. Yeah. So it is. Um, but for every customer, we, we set up separate sort of instantiations of it. So, okay. Okay. Um, so and they, we do that for data privacy, data security between the different you know customers. So it's not as if it's like one giant server. Right? <laughs> right. We have lots of yeah. We have lots of. Uh, You're not sharing data between all the companies. Okay. Yeah, all exactly. right. All right. Gotcha. Sure. And uh, and you know what? What other kind of products or features are do you think the the world of IoT needs that you want to build? Well, you know, honestly, the biggest uh, there's lots of challenges in IoT today. The biggest one still is cost. Um, and um, what's starting to happen in the, in the world of, of radios is good. So, you know, IoT, Internet of Things, the, uh, the real challenge is in the word of. You know, we understand the Internet. We understand things. <laughs> but try to put those together. There's, that's where the complexity lies. And sometimes I tell people that we are in the business of of. You know, we're trying to make that piece easy. Um, and so um, communications is a challenge. Um, Wi-Fi. It's, it's easy once it's set up, but it's a pain to set up. Um, it's not always reliable. It's not always super secure. Cellular, on the other t- on the other hand, is easy to set up. Um, it's it's very secure, but it's also expensive. Um, but now with uh, this new modems coming out called Cat One modems, which will be cheaper, the airtime will be cheaper, data plans will be cheaper. Um, and so that that trend will continue. You'll get cheaper and cheaper uh, modems, cheaper and cheaper. Data plans, the carriers are going to be playing, I think, an important role in that transformation going forward. Um, I think open source has to continue to uh, mature so that people can really count on it to build not just prototypes but actual products in the same way that Linux and MySQL and all you know all the other open source foundation stones that everyone uses today. Um, the same thing needs to start happening in, in the world of hardware. I think it is starting, but you know it's probably another 10 years before we're that's business as, normal, as usual. Uh, you know, hardware takes a long, much longer time than software to become something, only because, again, thinking about what I said earlier about friction, it's just things just take longer. Everything takes longer in the physical world than it does in the digital world. Um, but, you know, all these things will happen, I think. It's just a matter of time before, you know, the business models catch up and make sense of, of all the different opportunities. But we're obviously very bullish on it. Gotcha, and we're uh, kind of running out of time here, um, but I'm curious about uh, your book. You know, what what pro- 
that you uh it was published in 2013 is that right Around That's right. okay and you know what prompted you to write the book and do you think you'll write another one uh, well um <laughs> the uh what prompted me to write the book was just two things um we were struggling really as a company to try to figure out what does iot mean so what does iot well how is iot different than what it currently existed which at the time was and still is called m to m which is machine to machine which is a space has been around for 20 years um not that exciting it's sort of boring it, it serves a function which is a very important function but it's really if you're going to go invest in m to m software the roi typically is around uh saving money so you're gonna it's a you go and invest money because you're gonna you invest a hundred thousand dollars because you're gonna save two hundred thousand dollars you know that kind of thing which is fine uh, but what we started to see is that internet of things included m to m but it also had other interesting opportunities. Um, and if you think about what I mentioned earlier about Dweet, where we're using this notion of a follow, um, that represents a little bit of a social networking type of mentality. And we did a number of interesting projects with vending machines, where the vending machines would vend samples of, of whatever they were holding, like a beverage or a sample, um, if you did things like press like on a Facebook page. And... Huh. You think about the ROI around um, that kind of uh, implementation. The ROI is not about saving money at all. It's about making money. It's about market awareness and, and positioning and so on. And and so when we came up with the idea of social machines, it was really based on this idea: of what happens when machines start participating in social networks? What happens when machines start following you on Facebook, or you start following a machine on Facebook? Um, you can imagine why you might want to follow your teenage son's car. <laughs> yes. I, I don't even, I wouldn't <laughs> even have to tell you the reasons why you want to follow the car, right? There's reasons. And, and so when machines start becoming smart enough and responsive enough and secure enough that you can literally bring them into a social graph, um, interesting possibilities uh, pop up. And so the book Social Machines was really written from the standpoint of things we were seeing and how we thought value could get created in iot around that sort of vector well that's a wonderful yeah that's a wonderful vision because there's always connected uh items but man it, it, sometimes it's hard to connect with them or you need to they all have their own app but if you could just print into something you're already using and just say hey follow my car follow my fridge follow you know exactly. oh man yeah that's a uh, and make it that easy and i can see where Dweet now is a uh, that's where it's probably headed well, that's where you wanted to head it. That's the idea. Okay. That's where we wanted to go, yeah. Interesting. That's pretty sweet. How far away do you think we are from being able to follow your car on Facebook or another? Uh, well, you can uh, do it today. You can. I mean, well, the technology exists. Okay. The problem is just um, it's just getting applications that are easy to use and easy to install and, and so on. But we're not that far. I really don't think we're that far. Okay. So stay tuned. Gotcha. And maybe – and. My my last question was, I mean, and maybe that kind of answered is you know, a lot of things with the in the IoT world, a lot of like really interesting, cool ideas, but it's hard to find that ROI. But I mean, you kind of spoke to that. That uh, it, well, sometimes it's not always about the ROI. But uh, have, I mean, have you seen any examples where there is the ROI is really strong that you run across, and and maybe the ROI we have to look at it a different way than just necessarily. Um, the economics um, could be engagement, which leads to you know 
better <laughs> economics later on, but sure. um, yeah. Well, I think the, if you, if you take a subsection of internet of things and look at it from the standpoint of M to M, which we mentioned earlier, yep. I think it's in the very well-established and proven ROIs in that world that have to do with remote monitoring, um, you know, making sure that a machine is really broken before you send a tech if it's an inventory issue, making sure that you only restock the refrigerator if it's empty, you know. So there are real, there there are real numbers you can put against those types of business processes. Um, the flip side, though, which is the making money one, those are just starting to become, I think, um, better understood. Um, and those have to do, in many cases, they have to do with sort of fuzzy metrics, which would be things like market awareness and market positioning, which is not, not so easy to gauge. But um, but there are things such as uh, promotions within retail stores where they can literally say, you know, this technology drove this many sales. So here's a funny example. There's a, a vending machine um, in Argentina, I believe, and it was called the rug beer, rug beer machine. <laughs> okay. And the idea was, you know, because rugby is a big deal down there. Yeah. Um, the idea is that you would hit the machine as hard as you could. And depending on how hard you hit it, you got X amount of beer. Um, and so it became this huge macho thing for the woman, you know, to say she wants a beer and some guy to come, you know, really smack the machine and get her a big beer because he's a macho guy. Um, and you can imagine what happens the more people drink, right? So the, the statistics were something like, any bar that had that machine sold 30% more beer. It was like an astonishing <laughs> increase. Yeah. Oh, that's so, a good example. <laughs> yeah, but but there are things like that, right, where where the machine becomes part of a uh, a marketing or sales uh, mixture and drives top line types of things. So, but like I said, those are all you know fairly new. Um, but I think again, over the next couple of years, you'll see a lot more like that. Interesting. I have to remember that one. I have not heard of that, but that's pretty brilliant. Yeah, an extra thirty percent. That's a uh... That's a big number <laughs> on a Friday yeah. night. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Well, I think we've uh, unfortunately come to the end here, and uh, but definitely uh, appreciate your time, Peter, and your thoughts. And this is a uh, quite interesting, and uh, learned a lot yeah. about hardware. It's not. I know more about software, so this is a uh, for me. It was great learning more from you. Well, good. Well, I'm I'm uh, super happy to. Uh... I've been invited on your show and appreciate it and uh, hopefully it was helpful. Definitely. And uh, thanks to everyone else for uh, listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. And uh, this is a Dave and Peter signing off. Bye everyone.